TV skills, but there you go. Um, Thursday. I'd like to welcome everyone to our last session uh, this week. On Tuesday, we look to our calling to be among the righteous and to live differently, being salt and light in today's world. Now, yesterday, we looked at how we might learn to be content and the need to see our true selves living differently in the light of God's grace and how that, uh, rather than how our culture views us. And today we're going to look at our Christian hope and how it should influence us to live differently. And I'm going to start by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. So you might like to turn with that, turn to that, because we'll read quite a bit of that together. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that <clears throat> the proven uh, genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So tonight we're going to talk about that living hope that Peter mentions. We certainly feel at the moment, don't we, that we're going through trials and difficulties and we hope that this Covid crisis will soon be under control. We hope for better times. We hope to be able to see and touch our friends and family. We hope to get back to normal work. We hope to be able to eat together, cry together, talk face to face. 
And we have become aware of just how much relationships are important. And we hope that we're never going to have to go through this again. Things we hope for. But Peter talks of a hope that is far more certain. It's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And this certainty is reaffirmed in Hebrews. And I'll read this uh, bit uh, to you, but it's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by somebody greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, <clears throat> we who have fled take hold of the hope that is set before us and we may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. Even today, it's common in law to make an oath, not just under one's own certainty, but on the Bible and with an appeal to God as the ultimate arbiter of our oath. In Abraham's case, God made a promise and then guaranteed it himself as the ultimate judge of all oaths and their fulfillment. Jesus is our Passover lamb, blood shed for our sins and forever high priest, taking us into the presence of God himself. And Jesus's resurrection demonstrates the ends of the powers of darkness and Jesus himself is our anchor and promise of once again being in unity with God and his purposes for mankind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13 says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 13. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to you himself. All this is for your benefit. So the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Although outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. James Paul, in his book, What on Earth is Heaven? Catchy title, hey? <laughs> has this helpful analogy. When I look at my kitchen table, he says, I can examine its shape, the surface, the legs, the way it sits in the room, but also I remember happy family times, sat around eating, talking, sharing, laughing. I remember the stain where my son spilt paint. The table is more than its physical presence. It has the dimensions of space, but also of time. Heaven can be seen as another dimension outside of what we see and know physically. We get some, glim some glimpses, doorways into eternal things. There's Jacob and his ladder with angels ascending and descending. That's in Genesis 28. In Exodus 3, we read about Moses and the burning bush, God appearing to him as the I am. Joseph before the fall of Jericho, sorry, Joshua before the fall of Jericho in Joshua 5, he meets the captain of the Lord's army. And Elisha at Dothan, we read in 2 Kings 6, when uh, Elisha's servant said, we're, we're surrounded by the Syrian army. Elisha prayed to God to open the eyes of his servant. And he did so, and the servant saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And we have the accounts of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And of course, the cross, death, resurrection, and all the appearances of Jesus that we get towards the end of the Gospels. So, as Christians, we fix our eyes on what is to come, knowing that this earthly experience is not the full story. There will be an eternal future. Now, for those with a materialistic point of view, atheists, agnostics, humanists, this is like a, a red rag to a bull. They believe in the here and now brought about by evolutionary progress. But this has no answer to the wickedness of men. Progress cannot stop evil. If progress gave us Hitler, Hiroshima and the Gulag, it can't be all that good, can it? Progress is a myth. It doesn't work. And even if it brought about utopia, at some point in the future, it cannot address the evil of the past. 
and furthermore it fails to tackle the essential nature and power of evil itself. So what of justice? How come no one with this view would be held to account Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, genocide in Myanmar or Rwanda? No, there will be justice. There will be eternal judgment. On this, the Bible is quite clear. And it's only the cross, as we saw yesterday, that, offer, that offers a solution both to the past and to the future. This certainty of judgment gives us hope that day by day life is not worthless and that we're not simply a product of our evolutionary molecules. Now, David Cook, an Australian pastor, preacher and past principal of a theological college in Sydney, uh, gave this helpful outline, which I just share with you as we pass uh, this point. He would say the life of a Christian, we're physically born into this world, we're born again as a Christian, then we die and our soul is to be with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, our soul comes back with him and a resurrection body is raised up and our soul, our essential essence, is then clothed again with a new body. We stand before the judgment seat. We will have no judgment, but there will be examination and rewards and we shall then be with the Lord forever. And at the end of time, as we know it, Jesus returns. And perhaps the, the clue is in what we glibly trot out, the second coming, the return of Jesus. So what is this life to come? Life after death, heaven even. Many of us, and I include myself, in this, have a very uncertain idea of what exactly heaven will be like. But I'm going to give it a go. Throughout time, there have been various pictures often expressed in ideas giving shape to heaven in literature, in poems and music. There are thoughts of pearly gates, clouds and harps. Heaven is seen as across the river or over the sea. A current, very current idea is that the newly deceased is simply in the next room or hovering over their favorite place. We still see in use the idea of the Egyptians that you needed to take everything with you that you might need in the afterlife. People place items, special items, in the, the loved one's coffin. Our hymns speak of being forever with the saints or of fields of everlasting life. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. I won't sing them to you. Till the ocean in the ocean of thy love we see we lose ourselves in heaven above 
and when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Well, in actual fact, there's very little in the Bible about going to heaven when we die. Perhaps we should have a look uh, at some of the things that do make this as clear as we can get to it. Please turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, and it says here, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is a picture of God coming down to earth to be with us. God coming down to earth to be with us. Yes, there are passages that deal with fire and burning up, but we can perhaps see those as, as talking about purifying and destroying the bad and preserving the good. We get that in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10 says this. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. There will be an examination. And we read about being caught up with Christ. And perhaps that's the idea of everybody swarming out to the triumphal arch as you would in Rome as the, as the emperor returns from a successful conquest or rushing to see the team bus come through the city center when your team has won the cup. But the predominant view is heaven coming down to a renewed earth. 
Everything is reset back to the factory settings, how God intended life to be here on earth. There'll be no more sin, no more disease, no more brokenness, a place of joy and purpose. And we read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. I'm sure there will be work in heaven. There will be purpose. Now, it's difficult for us to comprehend a, a dimension that is more real than our own present experience of place and time. But we do sort of imagine that it can happen. I mean, I don't know how many of you watch Doctor Who, but if you think of Doctor Who entering the TARDIS, somehow you're in a world that is not just a little phone box. We will be, the Bible says, real people with real bodies. Jesus's resurrection body was real. He was solid and ate and drank with his disciples. It says we'll be the same. In John 20, we get the story of Jesus appearing to Thomas. That's in John 20, verse 24. Says Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first came, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was very real, very solid to Thomas. And yet he came through locked doors. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Dear friends, we're now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in Philippians 3 verse 21 who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And Romans, five, Romans 6 verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Revelation 21, further on from where we read, says this in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
this reminds us that the whole Bible is, is full of imagery and pictures of what is to come. Even going back, right the way back to the Old Testament, um, there are pictures of what it's, what it's telling us about. And Hebrews speaks of that in Hebrews chapter 9. And you might like to turn to that because there's quite a, an important chunk there in Hebrews chapter 9, which tells us about the reasons for some of these things that we read about in the Old Testament. So Hebrews chapter 9 says this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold covered Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of, by the, means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean and they sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we might serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promise eternal 
inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So all that Old Testament rituals were just foreshadowing when Jesus would come. And when Jesus came, we have God with his people in person. God in person. Now, last Sunday, we went to the in-person service at our church and in person we saw again real people we heard the band we listened to the preacher and saw his face and his lips moving it was absolutely great to be there in church in person now paul tells us this in 1 corinthians 6 Flee from sexual, sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Think about that for a moment. What does that mean we are temples of the Holy Spirit. What did we read in, in Revelation 21, 22, a moment or two, or two ago? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Here, Paul's saying we are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us. We have God with us in person now, indwelling by the power of the Spirit. That means that we're experiencing part of heaven now. We are saved, redeemed, and we are part of the kingdom of God. 1 Colossians chapter <clears throat> 9 verse 13 well no one um, sorry I've lost that reference I'm just looking it's 1 Colossians um, I think it's 1 Colossians maybe 8 verses 9 to 13 for this reason since the day we heard about you we've not stopped praying for you we continually ask God to, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that was 1 Colossians 1. So Jesus, Jesus is speak, often speaks about the kingdom 
of God, which we are now as Christians part of. We're part of the kingdom of God. We're part of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 10, Jesus says this. Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, verse 5. He said, do not go among the Gentiles or any of the towns of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. He prays that prayer that Jesus taught us. He prays in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're part of the kingdom now. This is a heavenly dimension now available to us, for us and for God. In Matthew 13, we get the parable of the weeds and the good seed. Matthew 13, and that, that gives us a, a clear indication that both of these things grow together. It says the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the devil. They exist alongside each other until the final harvest when they will be separated. So we need to see our lives with that heavenly dimension. What we do, what we say, what we work for day by day needs to reflect heaven and God's purposes. And thus there's, there's no need for us to feel that any of this is wasted at all. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do here on earth. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says, therefore, Dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We are part of building heaven today, now, here on earth. We're part of that as Christians part of the kingdom of God, part of that heavenly dimension, and nothing that we do is wasted because it's part of creating what God wants to make. Now I've been helped quite a lot by Tom Wright and in his book, Surprised by Hope, he says this, the kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of God. And this has broken into the present world in the person of Jesus. Jesus is indeed the truth. And in Jesus, we see God himself. And in Jesus, we see heaven. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste and indeed a guarantee of what God wants to do for the whole world 
for the whole cosmos. Christians are not only, not only the receivers of this salvation, we are part of the means by which God wants to make this happen, both in the present and in the future. We don't only receive salvation, but we're part of what God wants to do, both now and in the future. Tom Wright again says this, salvation is about whole human beings. Salvation is about the present, not simply the future. Salvation is about what God does through us, not merely what God does in us and for us. He uses the analogy of building a great cathedral. The architect has the whole plan in his mind and he has passed on all the details of the building <clears throat> uh, to the builders and tasks are allocated from the groundworks to the building of walls, shaping of turrets, spires, towers. There are stonemasons working statues, gutters, gargoyles. Now, some of them never see the finished building or have any idea where their work will feature once it leaves the workshop. An imperfect image, but you get the idea. Peter's imagery is of the stones living stones that go to make up the cathedral in one peter back to one peter in, in chapter two uh, peter says you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood the trouble is you know that and i speak to myself as well as you we're often more like dead stones than living stones. Christians, yes, but not put to use. And we're not just to sit around thinking that, hey ho, one day everything's gonna be all right and we don't need to worry about what we do. You know, we each have gifts, different gifts, and these need to be used to grow the kingdom. And we need to know what these gifts are. Paul talks about being part of the body, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 12, where all the parts are needed. And if parts are missing, then they're really felt. Your gift may be up front or it may be in the background, but each of us is important and we need to recognise what we can do so as to develop our gift and put it to use. Barbara and I remember vividly standing in our then church hall in Maidenhead, getting ready for a missionary weekend event. And Barbara had got people cooking foods from around the world. We had speakers sorted. We had prayer times fixed. But the main event, in, event involved decorating the hall to look like a tropical forest. I, with my DIY skills, had collected our carpet rolls from all the carpet shops and painted them to make, look, make them look like palm tree trunks. 
I had cricket netting from school to hang uh, from the ceiling. And we had all sorts of paper and card. Uh, and the young people said they'd come and help and make palm leaves, etc. But we had no idea, Barbara and I, how to actually make all this work. And we were standing there in the in the hall, uh, just wondering how all this was going to happen. Just then, a, a, a guy walked in and he said he'd come to help with the young people. And it was his first time. He's sorry he was late. But what could he do? Well, in, you know, it turned out he worked in set design for stage productions and he was away. Let's do this. Let's do that. Um, uh, he just beavered away and got the kids organised. Uh, a meeting finished in another church room and in walked the art, art teacher from our kids' um, comprehensive school. What can I do to help, she says. And before the evening was out, we had a, a tropical paradise. Well, perhaps not quite a tropical paradise, but it was absolutely great. And the whole thing turned out to be a great success. We had a basic plan, but the fulfilling of it was not what we were good at. Boy, did all those other gifts come in useful. We mustn't be ashamed of the gifts that God gives us. And as we recognize them for what they are, then we're freed up to use them without worrying about it. What we can do today is part of God's plan for us and part of heaven. We've been singing, haven't we, um, from that song uh, that the Thy Kingdom Come um, movement has, has been working through this, this last week. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And the plan, God's plan, is to use some of those words, transform, revive and heal society. Wow. That should give us purpose, shouldn't it? Purpose and direction to be salt and light, to live for God's glory and the eventual rebirth of creation. I'll leave you with that thought again from 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is our hope indeed. Well, thank you for listening and a, and a particular thanks to Steve Grout, who's beavered away organising all the technology for us. And, uh, and, and that's been so fun. That's been fantastic. So thank you, Stephen. And now there's going to be some breakout rooms um, for a time of sharing and discussion. And if you have to go, that's fine. Thank you for being with us for over some or, 